There could not be a site more fitting to dedicate to a great apostle of freedom. The little Kennedy children took every eye. Then their mother, that fascinatingly compelling woman who with quite superb courage remains uncrushed by adversity most cruel. Jackie's two priorities in the mid-1960s were often in conflict. One was to get on with her life, take care of her children, and put the horror of her husband's assassination behind her. But the other was to memorialize John F. Kennedy to make sure that he was remembered and honored. It was a painful disconnect. I'm Paul Brandish. You're listening to Jackie, a podcast about my book that explores Jacqueline Kennedy's life from November 1963 to October 1968, her transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. Perhaps this disconnect was no more painful than the day Jackie found herself in England on a bright spring day in May 1965, staring out at a lush green patch of land that was being dedicated in her husband's memory. The British government had decided to honor the late president by giving an acre of land to the American people, and the site was rich in history and symbolism, Runnymede, where King John signed the Magna Carta in 1215. The Magna Carta, of course, was, is, arguably the most important document in the history of Western civilization because it laid the foundation for rule of law and individual rights. When Jackie found out that this was going to happen, she was touched. She got a phone call from President Johnson. I just heard that uh, the, uh, you were going to probably go to uh, uh, the memorial to the president to Magna Carta and Runnymede, and I wanted to uh, suggest that if you cared to, that you and your party take uh, one of the 707s. The 707s, of course, were the jets in the presidential fleet. And uh, you might want to take any other members of the family or anybody in the party you wanted to, and if you should... Uh, if you would care to do that, the plane would be at your disposal in your direction anytime you wanted to. This was a very nice gesture on LBJ's part, but Jackie had a problem. One plane in the fleet, tail number 26,000, was usually the jet that President and Mrs. Kennedy had flown on. The last time she did so was the day of her husband's murder when she took his remains home from Dallas. Jackie did not want any reminder of that plane ride, that awful plane ride, and the other planes in the fleet were similar, though not quite the same. And if you'd like to do that, you just... uh... Uh, Let me know, and I'll have it all set up for you, and it'll be at your disposal whenever you want it, for whatever time you want it. Thank you so nice, but that's wasting taxpayers' money. No, no, it's not at all. It's very important to us and very important to the country, and uh, uh, you you just... uh, let me know how you feel if you have a chance to think about it. Oh, listen, I just don't know what to say. You don't say anything. That's the nicest thing I ever heard of. In the end, Jackie did take one of the planes, not 26,000, one of the other ones. Now, if you've seen the miniseries The Crown, you should know that 
parts of the episode where the Kennedys visit Buckingham Palace in 1961 were exaggerated for dramatic purposes. Still, it's fair to say that there was some tension between Jackie and Queen Elizabeth, perhaps some jealousy that may have run both ways. But by 1965, that seemed to be ancient history, and the ceremony at Runnymede was eloquent. This acre of English soil is now bequeathed in perpetuity to the American people in memory of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who in death my people still mourn and whom in life they loved and admired. Jackie did not speak that day. She said later, quote, It is the deepest comfort to know that you share with me thoughts that are too deep for tears. So Jackie and the Queen, everybody's all prim and proper as they honored JFK. But just a few miles away in London, things were loosening up. The swinging 60s were underway, and a young fashion designer named Mary Quant was making a splash. From basic design beginnings, she created the miniskirt, made hot pants and A-line mini dresses famous, and designed a look that epitomizes the design revolution of the swinging 60s. Around 1965, Quant decided that the next big thing would be short hemlines, very short, skirts that ran out of fabric around mid-thigh. But what to call it? She had a car named the Mini, and that was it, the mini skirt. The mid-1960s was about young women coming into their own. The pill had been approved. A book, Sex and the Single Woman, was a huge bestseller and a new magazine, Cosmopolitan, encouraged them to seek financial independence and break free of past expectations. Still in her mid-30s, this was the culture that was changing around Jackie as she continued to break free of her own past in her own way, jet-setting around the world, going to nightclubs and so forth, and the miniskirt, she became one of the first women to wear them in America, and thanks to her prominence, the mini took off on this side of the pond. Jackie was a role model for the whole of America, and Mary was the perfect personification for her brand. They both looked the part. Heather Tilbury was one of Mary Quant's top executives and closest advisors for more than a decade. I know that one of the things that Mary particularly respected and appreciated about Jackie was her ability, having developed a very personal style, which was uniquely hers. She dressed perfectly for an occasion and had the ability to then forget what she was wearing. It didn't wear her. And that's an almost unique gift that Jackie had. What do you mean it didn't wear her? Sometimes you see personalities, celebrities, wearing garments that are a bit fussy and they need adjusting or they almost take over from the personality themselves. That was not the case with Jackie. She knew exactly what she was doing. With additional perspective, here's Jackie biographer Pamela Keogh. 
She was no longer first lady, so you didn't see her in the little pillbox hat and she never wore again, and the white gloves. And the, then she, you're right, that she could become more of who she was. So there was a certain freedom, not a looseness, because she was always incredibly well-dressed, but she was, she was no longer representing the United States of America. What did she typically wear? It was very American. It was sporty, but it was sort of... French couture, which would, was what the American upper class would have worn. She was very athletic, youthful, sporty. So whatever she was wearing, she wore the clothing. It wasn't like a costume where the clothing was wearing her. You know, she had a gorgeous, a very straight line. Beautiful, you know, youthful, athletic, toned, walked. walked. People who knew her said she walked very, very quickly. And um, so obviously day wear, she's running around running errands. She might be, be in, you know, a pair of jeans and a T-shirt and a little sweater just running around. But then in the evening, she'd pull out the heavy hitter, the gowns, the jewelry, the, you know, depends, you know, the, 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 the heavy artillery for evening wear. But when she would go uh, out in public and uh, wear these right. things, of course, uh, every American woman wanted to uh, dress exactly as she did. Exactly. And, and then the great thing is with that, with that kind of thing, it was, you know, as I said, it was American upper class. But as Jackie, you know, the, the, the newspapers and the magazines disseminated her image all over the country, so you could get that same kind of, quote, Jackie look for, you know, $35 for a little dress. So it was, very, it, was, it was actually very democratic. Anyone could choose that kind of style, which is still very much in style today. You know, you can get the Jackie look, and it doesn't need to be Chanel or Givenchy. It can be, you know, sort of an approximation of it, which we still do today, which is wonderful about that style. Now, in a prior episode, I mentioned Greta Garbo, the iconic actress who fled Hollywood for New York in search of privacy and anonymity. She and Jackie reconnected in Gotham, and Garbo, who was much older, appeared to influence Jackie by hiding behind gigantic sunglasses and scarves and the pants Jackie wore in public that was also a Garbo influence. Here's Garbo's great niece, Gray Haran. I have heard that at a very, you know, famous restaurant in New York at the time, La Cote Basque, women had to wear dresses, and the only two women they let in who were wearing pants were Jacqueline Kennedy and Greta Garbo. I've heard that, and there were other uh, famous, prominent New York women who uh, they told to leave, including Babe Paley, the wife of the CBS chairman, even the wife of uh, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, as if that's not uh, prominent enough. Only Jackie and Garbo, was it, what does it say about those two women that they could get away with it and nobody else could? I think they were just such iconic uh, women of style. And also, there was this feeling, I think, of protection toward both, you know, particularly Mrs. Kennedy being a widow and having suffered such a tragedy. So this was Jackie in 1965, the assassination nearly two years behind her. And while she was still struggling, still had nightmares, things were better. Unlike Washington, which compared to New York, was small, dull, and somewhat unsophisticated, a one-industry town, really, New York had everything. Culture, sophistication, the best restaurants, the most interesting people. It was fun, it was colorful, it was exciting, and it was all laid out before Jackie like a magic carpet. More from my conversation with Pamela Keough. And she was also at the very apex of the A-list, which was uh, 
not a small thing. Everywhere she went, uh, she made uh, women envious and not a few men. Uh, let's be honest, uh, she was just extraordinarily uh, desirable. Yeah, I don't know, envious. I, th- I think women looked up to her looked because of her courage and, my God, that ghastly assassination that she had to go through and she had two small children. I think, I think Americans felt an enormous... Um, maybe maternal, maybe an empathy. You know, this poor woman had to go through this and yet keep going. But I think, yeah, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't at the apex of the A-list. She was the A-list. So uh, she was, um, you know, I I think it was somebody, it's a quote, I don't know if she said it, but somebody said, you know, she was the most famous woman in the world. It was it was Jackie and, uh, and Elizabeth Taylor. That was kind of, and maybe Queen Elizabeth. And everybody else. What was it like when she would go into a restaurant that was quite busy and loud, and it would just immediately grow silent and jaws would drop when she dropped in. She had that kind of an impact. Yeah, and again, because I think, you know, people like Jackie, JFK, Bobby Kennedy, they came from prominent families. They were jet-set, charming, all that stuff. But really what Jackie had, it was like history trailed behind her. Otherwise, she'd just be the wife of an extremely prominent wealthy man. But but there was, you know, she was she was part of American history. And I think that gives you a certain gravitas. Nothing reflected Jackie's improvement than the party she threw in September, ostensibly for John Kenneth Galbraith, who had been JFK's ambassador to India. But it was really a coming out party for the widow. Jackie rented out the trendy restaurant sign of the Dove and had a dance party. It was an eclectic crowd and only a New York kind of crowd. European jet setters Andy Warhol and his girlfriend Edie Sedgwick, who was dubbed the It Girl for 1965. And at one point, Jackie asked the DJ to play the fastest music he had. So he played the frog, which was all the rage, and the former first lady of the United States had a blast at her own late-night dance party. One of her dance partners was a guy named Killer Joe Pirro. Outside, a crowd gathered, Secret Service agents holding everyone back, and about quarter of two, with the party still raging, Jackie ducked out with her boyfriend, John Warnicky. By the way, she introduced him that night as her, quote, very special friend. But Warnicky, the architect who is designing President Kennedy's permanent grave at Arlington, wasn't the only man Jackie was seeing around town with. Among others, there was Mike Nichols, the writer and comedian. There was Andre Mayer, the financial advisor who managed Jackie's money. Let's talk about Mayer for a second. It's important to remember that Jackie, on her own, did not have a great deal of money. Well, a lot was coming in, the 2020 equivalent of about $2 million a year, but a lot was also going out. Her fancy Fifth Avenue home, servants, nannies, cooks, private schools, shopping, travel, on and on. She lived well, but had concerns about money. Mayer was a wizard at turning one dollar into two. He and Jackie had been neighbors in the Carlisle and became fast friends. Mayer was ruthless in business, but charming and attentive off hours. This, by the way, was a common thread in many of the men in Jackie's life. Her father-in-law was certainly this way, and as we've discussed in prior episodes, so was Aristotle Onassis. 
Jackie liked men with power and money. Nothing wrong with that. Deep down, Jackie did not want to be financially dependent on the Kennedys if she ever remarried, and there was speculation that one day she might. It would certainly be to a man of power and wealth. As she put it later on, I can't very well marry a dentist from New Jersey. In our next episode... Every night, Olympic Airways super fan jets head for Europe and the Middle East. Aristotle Onassis, Jackie's dear Greek friend, expands his airline to America and takes up residence just down the street from Jackie. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll check out my new book on Jackie between her two marriages. It's called Jackie, Her Transformation from First Lady to Jackie O, available everywhere. And if you're enjoying this show, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other history fans find it. Special thanks this week to Pamela Keogh and Gray Haran. Our producer, Hannah Ray Leach, sound designer and engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, and executive producers Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. Show theme by Josh Perlman Hall. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains. We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.